Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we are going to begin our discussion of Genesis chapter 33. And the entire chapter comprises a narrative section or pericope. Uh, we won't get through all of it today. Probably no surprise there. Uh, it's not a very long chapter, only 20 verses. But today we'll focus in on the first 11 verses. This, of course, after Jacob has crossed over the brook and wrestled with God and seen the face of God, which is where it gets its name, Peniel or Penuel, which is a variation of that means uh, God's face, the face of God. And that's his reminder. And of course, we saw that those lessons were just for Jacob. Every part of that, uh, the long wrestling match, the injury that he sustained during it, all of that was to test his faith. So uh, very good lessons there. But now, everything that preceded that. Remember, he was afraid of his brother. He was afraid that his brother was going to try and kill him. So he divided his family into two camps. He sent these royal lavish gifts on ahead of him to try and assuage his brother's anger, uh, all of those things. And now we get to see how it actually is going to pan out. So we see governing this section then, uh, this idea that believers ought to trust and acknowledge God in the midst of difficult circumstances. Uh, he, he's facing a difficult circumstance, and you and I as believers are going to face difficult things in our lives, and we ought to trust God in the midst of those things uh, and not abandon our faith. We should be able to, and we should actually do it, trust and acknowledge God in the midst of difficult circumstances. In verses 1 to 11, then, we learn this as a subset to our proposition that governs the chapter, that God is able to bring about reconciliation in spite of weak faith. We're going to actually see reconciliation happen here, and regardless of Jacob's weak faith, uh, we don't get punished for our weak faith. I think if, if there's any punishment that a believer receives with regard to weak faith, it's their own punishment. It's, you know, that they don't get to enjoy the vastness of God's blessings and the fullness of it. It's not that God is punitive in that if we have weak faith, we're really the ones who are affected the most by that. But when God desires to give his blessing, on the other side of that, he's going to do it in spite of that. It, the blessing would have been all the much better, <laughs> all the more better, I should say, had had he had better faith, okay? Verses 1 to 11, God is able to bring out uh, or about reconciliation in spite of weak faith. So in verses 1 to 3, then, we see that sometimes believers demonstrate weak faith. Let's go ahead and read the text. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. This really is a demonstration of weak faith on Jacob's part. This 
it's kind of been the theme of Jacob's entire life up to this point. He always seems to be a slow learner and very self-dependent. Even his encounter with the angel of God that happened just a few verses before this in the preceding chapter doesn't appear to increase his faith, or if it does, only incrementally. So all of this started before he crossed the river Jabbok there, the Jabbok River. If you go all the way back to verse 8 of chapter 32, you see this thinking, he's thinking this, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. This is why he had done all of this, and now he's still going through with his plan. So it had started before that, so obviously his encounter with God didn't affect him as much as one might hope. And let that be a lesson to us as well. Uh, So it started back there, and this lack of faith probably led to strife down the road. If we were to look ahead several chapters to chapter 37, verses 2 through 11, we will end up finding uh, this idea of favoritism. Uh, That is going to come out in the whole narrative with his sons. He particularly favors Joseph and gives him the coat of many colors, right? Why does all of this exist? Because of favoritism within the family, because of division within the family. If you look carefully, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. In verses 2 and 3, how he divides the family up. He's going to go on ahead of everybody, so he, you know, he, this is good. He, he's kind of the man here and hopes that maybe he'll just take the brunt of it and save his wives and his children, but right behind him is Leah with her children. Uh, well, actually, right behind him is the servants with their children, then Leah with her children, then Rachel and Joseph, his favorite ones, they're last of all. And then he goes on before them, so he's at the front of the line, but he's like, well, if, if Esau's really on a murderous rampage, he's going to kill me. And maybe when he's done killing me, he'll stop. Uh, but if he's not done with his anger yet, maybe he'll just kill my, you know, the servants and those children first and not get to Leah and her children. And then if it does persist, you know, maybe by that point, Rachel will see what's happening and she can flee and run for her life and she'll be saved. There's favoritism. Uh, even present in how he divvies up his family here. And that doesn't seem to go away. Again, we see it present, you know, four chapters from now when we get to the whole Joseph Toledoth, because that's actually where it ends up going uh, from here. Jacob doesn't take us out to the end of the book. We get Joseph who takes up a, a huge chunk of that. And favoritism is still very much alive in the Joseph narrative. Okay, so we see that present in the division of his family with the reaction to a perceived threat. He sees Esau coming, 400 men, you know, he's very scared. And those farthest away would be safest. That's Rachel and Joseph, last of all. The closest would be considered expendable. He puts himself at the front of the line. Good for him on that. But then, like we said, you work your way down that. And it's a very telling story how uh, where everybody's placed in that line. So weak faith then can lead to unnecessary humiliation. Verse three, he comes, he himself goes on before them. That's all well and good. But look at this unnecessary humiliation here where he bows himself to the ground seven times as he's coming to his brother. So his brother will see this obsequious behavior. Okay. And that's, that's really unnecessary. He goes first and be, and he comes in this penitent manner. 
not the way brothers who've been separated for 20 years ought to be reunited, right? If I haven't seen a family member in a long time, there should be joy. It should be a a wondrous occasion, and it's not. It's the complete opposite. Why is that? Well, for Jacob, his entire life has been built on deception and trying to manipulate the will of God in his own favor. So he has no reason to expect things to be joyful uh, and marry during this time. Rather, he's expecting the complete opposite. And he's really brought that on himself. If we actually step back and see the big picture, his faith is weak. Uh, he has orchestrated these things. And from his human standpoint, he's totally to blame for this. And that's, that's not really a good thing. That should make us step back and note this, that the patterns that we build in our lives can be difficult to break down even as believers. And so the question that I would have for myself, for any listeners here is what patterns have you brought in to your, your Christian walk? I mean, I, I understand that the passages that talk about how God has transformed us and made us into new creatures at the moment of salvation. And some of those things, we have a desire now to fight the evil that we see in us and present uh, in our lives. But there are other aspects where, you know, some long-standing ingrained patterns take time uh, to undo. And it, it, takes deliberate action, thought out, purposeful, you know, action on, on that. So those are the things that we have to ask ourselves those tough questions. Like uh, what, what do we see? Because if, if we have things that are not good patterns in our life of behavior, those can be difficult to break down. If he has spent his life trying to manipulate the circumstances to obtain the blessing of God and thinks that he is somehow affecting the outcome, and we would argue that Jacob has done exactly those things, then it would be difficult for him to behave in a manner contrary to that. So we find himself still trying to do the very same things. And that's too bad. It really is kind of a sad testimony. And it's, it's a wake-up call for us because if we have those things in our life, well, we need to be real careful. Now, secondly, in verses 3 to 7, and all of this is still uh, subsumed here under this first point that God is able to bring about reconciliation in, in spite of weak faith, uh, we see this, that God can work in great ways despite our faith or our weak faith. So he's going on before uh, the, the whole crowd of his family. He's bowing himself to the ground seven times till he comes near to his brother. Now we're going to see God work in spite of this. <laughs> Verse four. I love this. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near and their children and bowed down. And Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Incredible. God can work in spite of or despite our weak faith. We see in verse 3 again as we revisit that, that believer's weak faith can be made visible. That's with his bowing himself to the ground seven times. But starting in verse 4, God can work in our enemy's hearts. And he clearly does this. Jacob has no idea what has just taken place in Esau's heart or has taken place over the course of the last 20 years. But we see the, the end result of that in the actions. 
Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, fell on his neck. Now, there is a corollary lesson to this, and that that's the first thing. Like, we don't know what's happened to Esau, but we see the end result in his life. But keep in mind as we put this together that Jacob had gone off the assumption that based on the things that he had observed and the last things that he had seen, this was what was going to happen, that Esau was going to come out to kill him. He was wrong in that. And I just can't help but think that there was a, I learned this lesson in a very stark and real way very recently. And we're talking in the last week, uh, I had had somebody come to me and all the signs, all the signs were that this was going to be a very, very negative thing. They'd asked for a meeting and, you know, when somebody comes to you in that way and, uh, you know, there were a whole bunch of circumstances, I made an assumption based on all the things that I knew that, that this was what was going to happen at the meeting and it was going to be pretty bad. I was not looking forward to it. I was sick to my stomach. You know, it, it was really bad. It, it really ate me up. Well, I got to the meeting. I agreed to the meeting. And what do you know? But all of a sudden, it's not what I thought it was. It was going to be something different. And that was a huge lesson for me. Even though I was 99% sure of what it was going to be, that 1% kicked in and it turned out to be maybe not the greatest, but it certainly wasn't as bad as I had thought or dreaded. And, you know, Jacob just had no idea. In, in other words, we can make all kinds of educated guesses and assumptions, and it's good to make plans and to think through those things. But at the end of the day, we just don't know what's going to happen. And don't discount the work that God can do in other people. God had done a work in Esau's life. God did a work in, in this other you know situation in my life recently. And it was a blessing to see that. I was I, Never had I been so happy to be wrong. And I will gladly admit that, that I had gone in thinking it was going to go one way and I was dreading, fearing the worst. And it wasn't the worst. And I was so happy to be wrong. (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, we see that here. So in verse four, Esau runs to meet him. They embrace and he falls on his neck and kisses him and they wept. You know, the, the incredible thing is, is this is how it should have been. This is, this is what a family reunion of two decades being apart should be like. And and there's such a contrast between the two brothers, uh, not only their personality before they left, obviously, but even now there's a contrast between how Jacob prepares for his meeting with Esau and how Esau just like pounces on him, not for negative sake, but just because he's so happy. There's a huge contrast there. And that's really what the narration, uh, that's, that's how the form of this chapter really takes uh, shape here. It really points us to that. God had turned Esau's heart, one commentator wrote, uh, so much that he was eager to be reconciled with his own brother. He cared nothing for the birthright, for ever since Jacob had left, he had enjoyed a full and productive life under God's blessings. Uh, Esau was magnanimous and gracious, and but Jacob was halting and self-abasing. And that's just too bad. It really is a sad testimony for, for Jacob. Uh, the same commentator goes on to say, Esau greets Jacob as one brother greets another after a long separation. Again, like we said, how it should have been. Jacob greets Esau as a vassal and greets him with uh, his patron with ceremony, which has its origin in the royal court. There's a display of solemnity uh, as r- becomes rank, the sevenfold obeisance, the submissive address, the presentation of the gifts of homage. 
these two types of greeting are so skillfully worked together that the contrast, this, this author says, speaks for itself. Very interesting perspective there. And in verses 5 to 7, all of that was just verses 3 and 4, we see even the weak in faith believers should acknowledge God's blessing. Uh, and Esau lifts up his eyes. He sees the women and the children. Who are these with you? Jacob is the one who has the weak faith in this. Uh, Esau is probably not even a believer, but notice his response. Here's what Jacob said, right? The children whom God has graciously given your servant. At least he recognizes and acknowledges God and his hand in his life. And that's the way it should be. And so that's that's good. That's encouraging. Uh, that's all we have time for today. We'll pick it up in verse 8, uh, starting in our next episode. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.